Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 225. Today is May 5th, 2017. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, hey, I have a long list of listener questions that I still haven't gotten around to. I'm going to try and consolidate them into this fairly quick episode, so we'll call this kind of a lightning round. Oh, and before I get to the questions, I do want to mention that this week I closed out a short position in oil. That was something I owned through DNO. That's Delta November Oscar. It's a position I had for quite a while, held it way too long. Finally cashed it out with just a small double-digit gain. I did put that information out, as I always do, at the blog post at investablewealth.com. If you want to keep up on any changes I make to my portfolio, that's where you're going to hear about it first. It's a free service. You get email notifications, no spam. I don't sell your information, none of those games. So, hey, let's get to these questions. First one is a really popular question. I've been getting a lot of it. People want to know what's going on with the Brexit. Is uh, this snap election that's coming up in June going to change anything? Um, you know, how is the overall UK economy doing? Should you be investing in, in England? Those kind of questions. Well, as most of you may know, I've been long the British pound since right after the Brexit vote. It came down more than 10%. I bought it. It went down like another 12%. Since then, it's come back up. I've continued to hold on to that, uh, particularly since uh, the surprise election of Donald Trump. I saw some big changes in currency flows with that. That position is still a loss for me, but it's it's right around, I don't know, about maybe five and a half, a little bit more percent of a loss. I'm not worried about that. I do think the British pound sterling is going to come back up to at least the level I bought it at, if not better. We will most likely have to get through that British snap election in June for that to happen. The reason I continue to be optimistic on the pound is that overall the British economy is doing pretty darn good. In fact, their GDP really doesn't seem to have suffered at all. They are going through a lot of internal inflation right now, as you would imagine, if your currency just all of a sudden had, you know, 15, 20% less value overnight, you're obviously going to experience inflation. Remember though, inflation is the big mantra, holy grail of all these central bankers. They're all trying to get these developed economies to have around a 2% inflation rate because the global economy is suffering more from deflationary forces than inflationary forces. As far as whether the snap election will go in favor of Brexit or against Brexit, I, I think just from what I'm reading and seeing in, in the polls and the commentary I'm seeing, as well as the fact that the British pound is gaining strength, I think the market thinks everything's going to be just fine. But who really knows? And least of all, it's the experts that know. Listen, I'm not worried about the British economy. They're an island nation. They have strong roots in free trade, in global trade. I mean, think back to when they were still a British empire, how they managed certain economies, particularly things like Hong Kong. In fact, I, I think Hong Kong would be an amazing model for the UK to start leaning towards. And obviously, they're not going to go to that extreme. But we've already heard some rumblings coming out of England saying that if the European Union pushes them too hard on this Brexit, and tries to put up trade barriers, that Britain's going to go all in on free trade and perhaps be some kind of a tax haven. Well, again, I think that's probably rhetoric. I don't think they'd go that far. But boy, imagine if they did. Imagine if Britain became a Hong Kong or a Singapore on the English Channel. The other thing that I think you have to take into account with the UK economy 
is that I don't think that the European Union, and in particular Germany, has the upper hand as much as they're letting on and as much as the press coverage seems to be leaning that way. And remember, this goes back to the old saying that my grandfather used to say about, if you owe the bank $100,000, you have a problem. But if you owe the bank $100 million, the bank has a problem. Well, I think that's sort of the relationship that the EU has with England. You look at a country like Germany. They're a major exporter. They export something like, I don't know, 47% of their GDP. Half of that stays within the, within the EU. The UK's exports, on the other hand, are something like 20% of GDP. So I think Germany needs to sell into the UK market a whole lot more than England needs to sell into Germany. And when I go to London, I see a lot of people driving BMWs and Mercedes and German cars. When I go to Frankfurt, I don't see too many people driving cars from England. In any case, I think it is safe to invest in England. I'd stay away from the real estate market. As you know, I'm already long in the British pound, so I think that's still a safe move. I think if you just ignore all the drama and the half-truths that are coming out of these negotiations, you'll be just fine, and the British economy will be fine over the long run. Now, next question I've gotten a lot of, particularly in just the last few days, is what do I think about Twitter? Is Twitter a buy? Well, if you've been paying attention, you know that about a week or so ago, Twitter announced that they're seeing an expansion in their user base. Tom Dorsey, their CEO, made a big purchase of the stock. And then just recently, Mark Cuban made a big purchase into Twitter. And we've seen the stock go from, oh, I don't know, went down to almost about $14 a share. And now I think it's up to above $18. So anybody that's gotten in lately has done really well. However, it is still way off of the price on its initial public offering and the highs that it had made about two years ago. Well, the other recent news that has come out on Twitter, too, is that they're partnering up with um, Bloomberg. And I think that's really a good idea. Really, the, the Twitter model, the best use for Twitter in that immediate news type category fits perfectly with Bloomberg. I'm actually surprised Bloomberg didn't buy them out a long time ago. Actually, I'm not surprised because the market capitalization is, is crazy high. But I think if there is going to be a merger or some kind of takeover, it would be with a media giant, particularly somebody in the financial end of the media news, like a Bloomberg, that would acquire Twitter. So do I think it's a good buy at 18 bucks? No. Um, actually, Twitter was on my watch list, um, but my price was way down at uh, around $12. I, I wasn't going to buy in for sure unless it got below 13 and then I may have even held out to get somewhere down around 12 even buying in at $12 could be quite a risk. I don't think Twitter's going to go out of business. I think eventually someone's going to come in and buy them. It's that whole question of, can they get their revenues and their profits up high enough to justify the huge valuation that's on that company? I'm really skeptical that Twitter can make a lot of money under their current management. Now, again, if someone came in and bought them out, like a Bloomberg, that would change the equation around. But of course, by then, it would be too late for guys like you and I to get in on it. Remember, my strategy is very conservative. I use the same techniques that I've been using for the last 30 plus years. I like to make a lot of base hits. Occasionally, when a pitch comes across the plate really slow, then I'll hit it for everything I have and I'll swing for the fences and I'll go for that home run. But I'm not looking for a home run on every trade. Good quality, consistent returns at a reasonable risk are what I'm looking for. Twitter, these other momentum stocks, they're generally just not for me. Let's go on to our next topic. 
I receive a lot of questions about people asking, should they pay their mortgage off early? Or it's a variation of that question. You know, should they pay their student loan off first before they pay off their mortgage or before they start making extra payments on their mortgage? Or should they be funding their 401k plan, uh, you know, maxing that out before they start paying additional principal amounts on their mortgage? You know, just variations of that kind of question. Like most investing questions, you know, there's no easy answer. There's no one answer that fits every situation. Some people have a philosophy where they never want to pay off their mortgage. You know, that's not me. Again, I'm a very conservative person. I think that it's good to have your mortgage paid off. I like that kind of security. To me, it's just a matter of diversifying my overall net worth the same way I diversify my portfolio. I don't ever put all my investments in just one stock. I want to mitigate risk by diversifying my investments. So I do the same thing with my net worth. A certain portion of my net worth is in the stock market. A certain portion of my net worth is in my business. A certain portion of my net worth is in you know other business interests. And a certain portion of my net worth is in my home. The part that's in my home is fully paid for. And so if everything else falls apart, I still have my house. Now, again, this works for me. I like living that way. I like that kind of security. Other people don't. Other people want to leverage everything because they feel they can make more money that way, and they probably certainly can. But I'm always more concerned about my freedom and independence than I am about money. The other thing to consider is, is that, you know, I'm in my mid-50s. I didn't have a paid-off mortgage when I was 25. And so it all depends on where you are in your financial building process. I talked to a guy, oh, probably a couple months ago, really young, smart guy, maybe like 27. I don't remember the entire conversation, so I might get some of the details a little mixed up here. But he was asking me about advice on how he could diversify into the stock market because he had basically all of his wealth concentrated into one rental property. And he was concerned about that. Now, normally, that would be a concern for me. If you came to me and said, hey, everything I own is in this one rental property, I'd say, man, you need to diversify. But not with this particular guy, because did you hear what I mentioned? He was 27. He's really young. He has years and years, decades ahead of him. He was working a job. He was building his part-time business. He was building this rental property. He had, you know, 100 grand equity in it. Unlike other people that have student loan debt and car debt and all those kind of things, he didn't have any of that. So for a smart, sharp young man like that, it's okay to put all your eggs in one basket. You have to do that when you're starting out. But as you grow and as you mature and as your net worth increases, that's when you have to build in the diversification. Because again, remember, if you fail when you're 27, so what? You get up, get up, you brush yourself off, you start over again. If you fail when you're 57, not as easy. So should you pay off your mortgage early? It depends. What you want to be striving for is every year to be increasing your overall net worth. So look at it from that perspective. Ask yourself the question, how do I increase my net worth and my resilience every year? And then look at what you have to work with. I think the best answer is that you want to try and balance things out. Because contributing to, to a retirement plan, for example, if you wait to start contributing to your retirement plan until after you've paid off your mortgage and after you've paid off your student loan debt and after all these other things, well, you're going to end up being 68 years old and not have any money in your retirement plan. So look for consistency, look for balance, and it's always good to do things in moderation.
Next question and final question here. I had I had a couple others I wanted to get to, but I'm running out of time. So here's the final question for today. I get a lot of questions about, hey, John, is this a scam? And then they'll attach an article or a link or they'll tell me about something that, you know, they've been approached with. Now, here's a little spoiler alert. In almost every one of these situations, if someone thinks it's a scam, guess what? It is a scam. Now, it may not be illegal, but generally, it's all a bunch of BS. I'll give you an example of one that I've been hearing of lately, and it's kind of funny how these things get uh, churned around, and I don't know if, if they appear on some popular podcast or a radio show or if it's just a an email that circulates, but it seems like these things come in waves, and it's so funny that people keep falling for the same thing over and over again because it's usually just a little bit of a tweak. It's always you know, a different story, but the mechanisms are always the same. The one that I'm hearing about lately is like a guaranteed 14.32% return on your money or, you know, a guaranteed 13.92% interest rate. And you're going to basically double your money every three months. Come on, that's hogwash. There is no legitimate guaranteed investment coming out of Wall Street, coming out of banks, coming out of insurance companies, coming out of anything that I know of that's legitimate that's going to double your money every three months. And the way you know that is, just think about it. Do you see really, really smart people doubling their money every three months? You know, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Bezos, Elon Musk. I mean, any of these guys, they're, they're brilliant. They're geniuses. They're billionaires. They're not doubling their money every three months. If it was that easy, you wouldn't be hearing from it in some kind of a spam email or some kind of a joker podcast. The other thing to always remember in these things is that if it was possible, why would they be telling you about it? Why would they be wasting their time spending advertising money, um, sending you spam in your Facebook folders and news newsreels and things when they could just be doubling their money? If you start out with a, let's just say $100,000, which as you know, my philosophy is you're not really even an investor until you have 50 or 100,000. So if these people are so smart, they know how to make so much money, at a minimum, they should have a hundred grand that they can put into their investments. And if you start with a hundred grand and you start doubling it every three months, well, I don't know, I'm not going to run the spreadsheet, but I can tell you just off the top of my head, in about two and a half or three years, that hundred grand doubling every three months, it's going to be, you know, close to half a billion or a billion dollars in just two and a half, three years. So if they can make that kind of money that quickly, why do they want to fool around with you? Of course it's a scam. Don't believe it. Well, hey, I'm out of time. That'll wrap it up today. In the next episode, I do need to address a question that I've been getting a lot of, and that's about using stop losses. I think as we go into the summer months and as things start probably getting more volatile in the stock market, you need to be aware of stop losses. I personally don't use them. That's what I want to talk to you about in the next episode. 